You're going to find it really handy today to passage of the Bible open. We're going to get there, um, this kind of the second half of the talk today. Um, we're going to talk about a few other things because we're starting a series today, really. Um, if you've got, have we got brochures? Have people got one of these? I want, I want to hand these out. Can we do that? Um, this, if you haven't seen it before, is our New Life Anglican Church brochure, and we're going to hand it out to people because uh, the next four weeks we're going to be talking about how we want to do church together, um, what the Christian life looks like. It's really, really central to what we're going to be on about in our own heart at New Life Anglican Church. So if you open up that brochure there, and open to the middle, this is really weird, isn't it? Usually I get you to open the Bible, or get you open to this. This is kind of summarising a bunch of the Bible. So it looks like that. If you look at the left and right hand side, we are people who want to be giving the message of new life and living new life for Jesus. You want to know what we're on about? That is what we just want to strive to be doing. We want to be giving the message of new life to those who don't know it yet, and people living new life to Jesus. So on the left-hand side, we've got uh, giving the message of new life. And what we... Well, giving new life to Jesus. I don't know how this slide goes. There, you there go. we go. Yes. Okay, and if you start down there on the bottom there, these are kind of steps. Every relationship you have in your life uh, can be taken one more step further up this line. There's four steps there in giving the message of new life to people. The first step is you've got to meet someone. You've got to connect with them. You've got to get to know who they are. We don't know their name yet. That's, that's the level of connection we're talking about. They know who you are. You can greet them again. It's not the first time. Then you want to enter into a caring relationship with them. You want to do good things for them. You don't want to just... Maybe you will have opportunity to just get into the Jesus stuff with them straight away. That's great. But very often, people want to develop a relationship. You want to have some sort of get to know you. Let's do dinner for you. Let's, let's, let's get you over. It's just engaging with people in a way that's generous, seeking to be a blessing to them. But at some point along the way, if they don't know Jesus, you're going to want to communicate Jesus to them. And so we want to be people who are taking steps to people that are in our lives, taking the step to communicate to them, do you know who Jesus is yet? You know, I think that I know God as Father, and I think you can too. It's that kind of thing. And sooner or later, we really want to challenge them to commit, commit to Jesus. I don't understand. You've heard me talk about Jesus. I don't understand yet why you haven't committed. Would you like to hear about that? Would you want to commit to him today? We want to move to that kind of place. Then we want to move to the most exciting place of all. That step from, from five, four to five across the line is the most amazing journey that anybody can make in their entire existence. The Bible talks about it as moving from death to life. They start new life. They cross sides. Life can never be the same because Jesus is king and not me. Death won't be my finale. Eternal life will. Sin will not be my master because Jesus has given me the Holy Spirit to live a new life of Jesus. But that can only happen if God converts them. Get that really clear. What we're talking about is something that only God can do. And so as we talk about moving people on to commit, asking them, will you commit to Jesus? Will you start this new life of Jesus today? What we're saying to them is, turn to Jesus, at the same time we're saying to God, please turn them to Jesus. Because only he can do it. I'm just going to skip this bit because that shouldn't be it. Excellent. Here's why it's the most amazing journey. The Bible's description of people living in the world today is they're living in a state of death. Our world is under God's judgment. Mankind are enemies of God. And we love to act as though we're God instead. And so we're cut off from God, dominated by sin. People live each day with bad motivations, leading to wrong actions, leading to broken relationships, leading to a broken world. 
And so we're unable to live God's way because the Bible's verdict in the end. It's like you might as well flap your arms and try to fly. We are unable to live God's way left to ourselves. Spiritually dead, destined to die physically, and then faces judgment. And thankfully, Christianity is about the fact that's not the end of the story. Jesus came to the world, died for the sins of the world, and rose again so that people can have new life, new eternal life. And that means there's a different side. There's new life in the spirit to live. There's forgiveness and freedom from judgment. We're no longer enslaved to sin, and we're equipped by the Spirit of God to live God's way. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, Very truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Change sides. It's, it's the most radical change that ever happens in all of the world. Crossing from one side to the other. But you notice the second two points there. No longer enslaved to sin, equipped by the Spirit to live God's way. This is new life in the Spirit. Now look at my weird little picture there. It is actually quite deliberate. Um, God gets involved in our lives really, really personally when he changes us. You'll notice there's a crown, the Father, there's the Son, Jesus, and there's the Spirit coming down on a bunch of people. And so they move from the other side, the left-hand side, they've moved from being dirty in God's sight to being pure, blameless, clean in his sight. What happens is, Jesus ascended into heaven and he poured out his Holy Spirit on his people. God, our God, we won't go into too much depth today, but the God that Christians serve is God the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one God. Uh, there's three persons in the one God. That boggles your brain. That's all right. Boggles everybody's brain. <laughs> Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to be with his people forever. He will, be, he will not abandon us. He'll be with us forever by his Spirit. And the Spirit dwells in us and equips us to live God's way. It's absolutely crucial. This is like the foundation of, of what it means to live a new life for Jesus. If you haven't got the Spirit, you can't do it. You might as well try and drive a car that doesn't have petrol in it. That's what it is. The Spirit of God is the power of living the Christian life. He empowers us to live God's way. If you're a believer in Jesus, you might be thinking, oh, that doesn't feel like my experience. If you're a believer in Jesus, let me assure you, you have the Spirit of God. You have been equipped to live God's way. If you're not a believer in Jesus, or you know people who aren't believers in Jesus, it doesn't matter what they've done. If they turn to Jesus, they will receive that Spirit of God and be equipped to live God's way. Guaranteed. So for the next four weeks, what we're going to be doing is talking about what it means to live this new life. And so if you have a look at your brochure there, you'll see at the top of the thing, living new life for Jesus, there's four points there, faithful, adventurous, passionate, enduring. We're going to be going through one of those each week. Today we'll look at faithful. Um, but I want to say, uh, in this series, we're going to be talking about something bigger than that even. We're going to be talking about God's will for your life. We want you to know God's will for your life, and we want you to pursue it with everything you've got. That's what we want you to get out of this series. It's a really, really common question. Maybe you've asked it. What's God's will for my life? I think it often happens um, when you're in a change in life, when you think about getting married, moving house, moving to state, uh, changing jobs, all sorts of things. What is God's will for my life? It's a really exciting question. Um, the question I want to ask people in response when they ask me, what is God's will for my life, is do you really want to know? Because I know what God's will for their life is. That might sound really arrogant, I'll show you how I know what God's will for their life is. 
The problem is, you go to a bookshop, Christian bookshop, there'll be tons of books, how to find out God's will for your life. The problem with most books that say how to find out God's will for your life is they don't spend much time talking about God's will for your life. They really don't. It's, it's a bit sad, really, because God wants us to know his will for their lives, our lives. But the problem is that most people ask the question, what's God's will for my life, don't want to know God's will for their life. I think most of the time what people want to know is, I really want God's advice on how to get my will for my life. Very often that's what people are really asking, I think. So, my agenda at the moment is I want to know if I should get this job, if I should move to the interstate, if I should move. Setting, the person setting the agenda, the person asking the questions is me. What's God's will for my life? God, please give me infallible answers to my questions. Whereas the Bible wants us to tell what God's will is for our lives. He wants to set the agenda because he knows best. And part of knowing, part of submitting to God, God's will for our lives, is being willing to let him set the agenda. It's like my children saying, Daddy, I want this. Why can't I have sweets? Why can't we go here? I set the agenda because I know what's best for my kids. God sets the agenda. Because <laughs> 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 I'm a dad and I know the sweets aren't everything. Who sets the agenda for our lives? In a minute, I'm going to tell you God's will for your life. First of all, I want you to be ready to hear it. What do I mean? I want you to be ready to hear it. If you hear God's will for your life, you must not go home and pretend you didn't. You must not go home and be preoccupied with lesser things. Because this is God's will for your life. And if you know God's will for your life, if you're ready to hear God's will for your life, you need to throw every part of your being into pursuing God's will for your life. So are you ready to hear God's will for your life? Because I'm about to tell it to you. I'm deadly serious. You just can't let this get lost amongst the busyness of life. The Bible tells us what God's will for your life is. What's God's will for our life? It's God's will that you should be sanctified. That's what the Bible says to ordinary Christians. That is God's will for Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified. Oh, great. That's really clear. What the heck that means? Well, it means to be holy. Even clearer, huh? Uh, it's the same thing. Sanctified holy is the same thing. What does it mean to be holy? Being holy means set apart to be the way God wants you to be. It means set apart to be like God. A holy person is one who lives God's way perfectly in right relation to God and to other people. And we heard it in our first reading a minute ago, which, good, it came up. Um, this is what it means to be holy, to be sanctified. God has shown you a mortal what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. That means be in right relationship to other people. Always to do right by other people. To love mercy. It means more than just not doing bad. It means to pursue generosity towards others. To pursue always giving people more than they deserve rather than just what you're obligated to give them. Right relationship to other people and walk humbly with your God to be in right relation to God. To live day by day with God by your side, living by his word, prayerfully submitting to him. That is what you were made for. That is your purpose in life. There's nothing bigger than that. I've got nothing bigger than that. God, what's your will for me with my job? That is pages down God's agenda for you. God, God cares about that. But it's pages down the agenda. This is God's will for your life. Another way of saying it is what we've already talked about. God's will for you is to live new life in the Spirit, to no longer be enslaved to sin, to be equipped by the Spirit to live God's way, to live out what the Spirit empowers you to do. And the end of verse, uh, that Thessalonians passage, it goes on to say, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. 
Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Gives you the Holy Spirit to live his way, you see. It is God's will that you be sanctified, that you be like Jesus. And so we can't be preoccupied with lesser things. This is the whole game. Friends, God's will for you is that you live your life for Jesus. Let me be more specific. God's will for you in 2013 is that by the end of it, you would be more like Jesus than you are now. That is what God wants for you, more than anything. And everything else is 100th place. Have a look at how it describes Christian life in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. It says, uh, the first bit might sound a little confusing, but let's not be more concentrated on it. It says, we all Christians, uh, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. See, there's progress there, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's this idea that the normal shape of the Christian life is that you grow more like Jesus over time. That's what God wills for us. There's one thing that I want for our church. Uh, it's not that we have more people. I do want that. But if I was forced to say, is there one thing you want for this church, it's that we would be more like Jesus at the end of this year. Because that's what God wants for us. We're going to use this funny language to describe it called apprenticeship with Jesus. Have a look at your brochure there. Uh, and under five, it's here. Great. And let us there at the top, number five, it says faithful. That's the one we're going to do today. Being faithful is about the nuts and bolts of starting the journey of discipleship. Committing ourselves to discipleship. And you'll see the third question there uh, uses another word for disciple. How would you say your apprenticeship with Jesus is going? It's really important to note as we read this, this brochure. Um, Stuart and I worked really hard on it. What we're trying to do is sum up what the Bible teaches us about how to live God's way. Um, it's our packaging. It's not our content. Um, I believe that to such an extent, but I will say to you, it is God's will for you to grow in these four things here. Uh, because it's not our content. It's God's content that comes from the Bible. So we're looking close up on faithful. Um, how would you say your apprenticeship to Jesus is going? What it's about, you might have heard the word disciple or follower of Jesus. Apprentice is kind of just a way of saying the same thing in a fresh way. Hopefully we hear it a bit freshly. Um, what's a disciple about? Being a disciple is about being a student or an apprentice, um, but it's not the way we think about education. Now, the way we think about education is um, you don't need teachers. Teachers are completely unnecessary. Because the point of education is to learn a subject. It's not to learn a teacher. A teacher is a means to an end. So if you've got a teacher who teaches the subject, great. But if you learn the same thing on Wikipedia, okay, dispense with the teacher. We don't need the teacher in a way of thinking about education very, very typically. That's not the way they think about discipleship. What's a disciple? A disciple isn't a person learning a subject. A disciple is a person learning a person. The subject a disciple learns is the person they're following. You're a follower of Jesus. The subject you learn is Jesus in this. That's what you're aiming to excel in. I'm an apprentice to Jesus to learn Jesus' way, to live his way, to learn how he thinks, to learn how he speaks, to learn what he loves, and to love that as well. To treat other people, to live life the way he lived it. I'm an apprentice to the way of Jesus. My job is to excel in Jesus' So the emphasis isn't so much on what I know or what I do, they're important. The emphasis is on who I should become. I should become Jesus. Check out what Luke says. Uh, this, is, this is what Jesus says, Luke's recording it. 
Um, Jesus talks about being his apprentice. He says, the student's not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Do you hear that? The goal of our apprenticeship to Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're an apprentice to Jesus, the goal of your apprenticeship to Jesus is that you should be the Jesus-shaped version of yourself. That's, goal, that's Jesus' goal for you. And you are not fully trained until you're completely like Jesus. That's all right. How are we going to do that? Well, we've got two questions that are supposed to help us lead in that direction. Um, just have a look at your brochure there, um, Faithful, and there's two, the first two questions. These are things that are supposed to help us grow as Jesus' apprentices, and it's really, really nuts and bolts stuff. What are you learning as you read the Bible and pray daily? Just daily reading the Bible, praying to God. Are you joining God's family on Sunday and in life groups? So it's just the, are you meeting other Christians to encourage and help each other? It's really hard work to learn stuff, to grow like Jesus on your own. In fact, you can't do it. And so at New Life Anglican Church, we believe in doing church big and small. Right? So on Sunday, we're doing church big. Believe it or not, this is big. Bigger than we can do in a house. Um, and God willing, we'll grow bigger. But the idea is you come to church, big church, and hear the Bible taught, and that should be good for your Christian life and help you grow in your apprenticeship to Jesus. Um, and then we also do it small. So in life groups, it's, it's just like a Bible study group in somebody's house where you pray for each other, not to each other. And <laughs> you get to know each other. It's having people next to you who know what's going on personally in your life and can help you along the way. So the point of Bible reading, prayer, going to church, this isn't a thing you can tick off on your list and say, I'm being a good little Christian now. That's not a point at all. It's not a list of chores. This is the means God gives us to grow in our apprenticeship to Jesus. What are you learning as you read the Bible and pray daily? Are you joining God's family on Sunday and in a life group? We should probably read the Bible. How about that? Turn to chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, and let's look at a little bit of what Jesus talks about here, because this is a sermon about being an apprentice to Jesus. We're not going to look at nearly all of it. We're going to look at, I don't know, four verses. Um, we're going to look at this whole sermon later in the year in a, in a series about being apprentices to Jesus. Let's just get a couple of things out of it now. Matthew chapter 5 is on page 968. See how helpful that was? Uh, we're reading from chapter 5. So Jesus has just uh, been baptised by a guy called John. Uh, then he goes and picks some disciples, and very quickly he wants to train them to be his apprentices. And so he goes up on this mountain, and there's crowds following him. The crowds aren't interested in so much of what he teaches or following the way of Jesus. They're interested in the fact that he can heal people. And so he's got a massive following, but what he does, he gets up on this mountain side, and he teaches this very famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, because he's on a mountain, really imaginative titles. Um, and he teaches his disciples about what it means to be his apprentices. And it starts off with these things. You'll see a heading in your Bible there. It probably says the Beatitudes. Um, really weird word, word, right? It just comes out of Latin. It means the blessed. So see afterwards, Jesus says, blessed are the poorest in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. It's just the blessed. So they called it the blessed tunes or Beatitudes because they're really sophisticated Latin people, which I'm not. So I'm just going to call it the blessed tunes. <laughs> I really, really struggled with this part of the Bible for a long time. It took me a decade to work it out. What on earth is Jesus talking about? Just, like, read some of them. Blessed are those who mourn. Which people that mourn? All of them? For they will be comforted. When will they be comforted? What on earth is that about? Who, what, when, how? I have no idea what he's talking about. And so I went to a Bible study, and there's people there saying, I love the Beatitudes, they're so lovely, and I went to the Bible study not knowing what they meant still. Um... Uh, a couple of years ago, I was told at Bible College that I had to preach on this passage, and so I spent some time and had to figure out what it meant. 
Uh, and I'm really glad I figured out what it meant. Because until then, he might as well have said, let's do the cheesemakers for all who was doing that. I don't have time to give you my reasoning, but here's what the Beatitudes are about. Jesus is teaching his apprentices what it looks like to live out the new life in the Spirit in the real world. That's what the Beatitudes are like. This is what his apprentices will look like in the real, in the real world as they pursue their apprenticeship. Very, very typical situations they'll find themselves in. The, each Beatitude is the same pattern. You'll notice the first line is about the uh, present, usually, and the second line is about the future. So have a look at verse 4. In the present, blessed are those apprentices who mourn, for they will be comforted when the kingdom comes in the future. That's the pattern of pretty much all of them. So have a look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart means single-minded devotion to God. Blessed are those with single apprentices to Jesus. Single-minded devotion to God. That's what my apprentices will look like, says Jesus. For one day they will see God. The object of their devotion. One day they will meet God when the kingdom of God comes. And so all of them just have that pattern. The present situation, characteristics of Jesus' apprentices, they find in the present. Um, in the future, when the kingdom of God comes, they will receive great reward. Um, that kind of corresponds to the difficulty they have in the present. <coughs> and so you kind of just sum up the Beatitudes like this, and that font's a little small, but anyway. You just, this is pretty much the whole Beatitude. Blessed are Jesus' apprentices. In the present... Pursuing the apprenticeship is extremely difficult, frustrating, and widely ridiculed. But when Jesus' kingdom arrives, his apprentices will inherit all things, and they will master his trade. Present challenges, future glory. That's what they're all about. Let's read a few. Have a look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul refers to those who don't have material goods. You knew that. They don't have any pretensions or presumptions in relationships about showing proper, you know, like show proper respect to me. They don't have that because everything they have, they get from other people with their hands wide open. That's how they get everything they have. They just live with open hands, eager for whatever is given to them. One <coughs> spirit is about living that way towards God. People who are in poverty with respect to God. They come to God with no claim on his mercy, no pretension, no presumption, no expectation of recognition from God because of what they've done or the great person they are. They approach God as a spiritual beggar with open hands, eager to receive whatever he gives them. And what does he give them? A share in the kingdom of God. A share of everything in the age to come. God fills their hands. That's just how you become a Christian, isn't it? If you are a Christian, that's how you became a Christian. You realised that Jesus was offering something really, really big and good, and you said, okay. You held out your hands, and God filled your hands with everything he had to offer. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's also how you continue being a Christian. Day by day, I'm daily, utterly dependent on the Lord Jesus for everything I have, for I have nothing except what God has given me. I have the Holy Spirit because God gave it to me and continues to sustain me in His Spirit. I have a share in the Kingdom of God because God continues to delight calling me His child. I'm still utterly dependent. You don't graduate from that. Day by day, continual dependence on Him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those utterly dependent on God. Theirs is the Kingdom of Heaven. Blessed are those, verse 4, who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Friends, there's a lot of joy in the Christian life. 
I want to join the Christian life. Um, there's also a lot to mourn for too. Why is that? Well, having right emotions, having emotions that correspond to reality is really about just perceiving things the right way, isn't it? You see something the right way, you feel something that kind of corresponds to what you see. So if you see the glory of salvation that Jesus has won for you and that doesn't make you happy, you haven't understood it yet. Or if, if that hasn't at least happened to you at some point, you understand you've been forgiven for your sins and you don't, that doesn't arouse some emotions in, in you. There's kind of a lack of understanding. If you can see a person converted to Jesus and you don't rejoice, there's something in the understanding that's not really working. Um, because right understanding leads to right emotional responses. It's about seeing things clearly. But we live in an age where there are lots of things to see and experience that will cause God's people to mourn. Um, and that's how it was for Jesus, the man we're apprenticed to. Uh, he was called man of sorrows. And not for no reason. He wept at the blindness and sinfulness of Israel and that they just kept rejecting him and kept rejecting God. If we never weep at our world, we just haven't seen reality clearly yet. Because there's a lot to mourn. Um, it's terrible when people you thought were making progress in understanding the gospel and were moving towards accepting it just decisively reject it. Just turn off completely. Uh, I hate the fact that our society is cruel to refugees and calls it wisdom. <laughs> I hate it when I see the depths of sin still in my life. There's times that that just shocks me. The thing that kills me the most, though, is... People who you love won't even consider the gospel before rejecting it. And that's not to say nothing of the hardships and bereavements that lots of Christians experience all over the world that I don't have to experience. Jesus promises in the age to come his apprentices will be comforted. It will be hard now, there will be mourning now for the apprentices to the Lord Jesus, but comfort is coming. And I've got to say, I cannot imagine how God can fix the hurts of this world. But I know I'm trusting one who can do far more than I can imagine. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What's meekness? Meekness, well, meekness is its kind of a long definition. Go with it. It's other person-centeredness that kind of tends towards being gentle. It's being about other people, other person-centeredness, the default position of dealing with them is about being gentle towards them. <coughs> That's how Jesus dealt with people. It's closely related to being humble. Um, it's about serving other people gently and not harshly. Um, Jesus can be really direct and blunt about things. Um, but he didn't, he wasn't that way by default. He's really patient with his disciples when they're asking stupid questions and bickering over who's the best, um, if you read the Gospels. Um, he's not weak. It's just that his default way of relating to other people is to be gentle to them. So they're struggling with things, and he'll be gentle with them. He's not harsh. It's amazing, especially when he's led to the cross, and he's being meek. He's praying for those who are killing him. He's still caring about other people more than himself. See, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is just dealing with other people gently when it's really hard. It's the most, it's the strongest characteristic there is in the end when it's lived out in real life. But on the other hand, meekness isn't going to get you far in the real world, is it? 
Meekness is going to get you passed over for things you could have got if you stood up for yourself a bit more and other people will take advantage of you because you are being gentle towards other people to the best you can be in all sorts of situations. But it's the meek in the end who inherit the earth. Apprentices to the Lord Jesus who are meek like Jesus was on the day Jesus comes back will give them the earth. And so apprentices to Jesus are called to not engage in manipulation, not engage in power plays, to relate to each other in a way, just default position. Gentle, patient, kind, not harsh. Verse 6 is the best one. And it's actually the main point of the attitude, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's a really interesting image, isn't it? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Have you ever been really, really hungry? Um, like, <laughs> so, so desperate for food. It kind of stops being hunger and it starts being a kind of pain. Um, that's... Real hunger, when it comes down to it, there's only two ways it can end. You eat or you die, whichever one comes first. That's how you satisfy real hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, a few years ago at a church um, that Mandy and I were at, there were two women who were converted there, um, and it was extraordinary to watch them. Um, in six months after one of them was converted, I'm talking to her and she's saying, I wrote down because I remember it was a while ago, she's going, six months ago I'm reading this stuff in the Bible, and I would have thought six months ago, why, why on earth would you do that? Just why on earth would you do that? And she says, now I read it, and I think, why on earth would you not do that? Because it's so obviously good. Um, nobody's told these women to do anything. They just grabbed the Bible and just, they just wanted it. They just wanted what God would give them when they read it and to learn to be more like Jesus. It was incredible to watch. Why would I not want to be like that? And so Bible study like, stopped in, in school holidays. And I went, well, I want to keep reading the Bible. And so the two of them started meeting up together to read the Bible in the school holidays. And just because they were hungry for more, they wanted to be more like Jesus. And then they realized they're a pair of chatterboxes, which they really are, um, in a good way. It's just personality. They're, they're lovely people. Um, well, they've become lovely people by the Holy Spirit. It's extraordinary to watch. Um, <laughs> they're a pair of chatterboxes, and they realized... Um, we like chatting in Bible study, and we're going to stop all the Bible study time where we can learn more about Jesus. So, I know, let's meet for an hour before Bible study so we get all that chattering out of our system together, and so we can just read the Bible in Bible study and learn more about Jesus. This is just all their initiative. They're hungering and thirsting to be more like Him. And it's just not going to be satisfied. Either you, you eat or drink or you die. That's it. It's the only way you can be satisfied. They're apprentices to Jesus. It must have been absolutely astonishing. For Jesus' disciples to follow him around Palestine for three years. He knew no sin. He lived perfectly righteously all the time before God and before other people. It's often recorded in the Gospels that his enemies found him absolutely astonishing. They couldn't trap him into sinning or saying the wrong thing or that sort of thing. But what's more astonishing is the positive side. He always loved God in his entire being. He always lived for his neighbour. He never spoke unless it was good for the people around him. He never had anything to apologise for, but ask forgiveness for, or to repent of. And he wasn't sheltered. He did that in the context of hanging out with the worst sinners in Israel. And Christians, apprentices to the man of righteousness, are supposed to see that and have their mouths water and say, I will not be satisfied until I am like that man. I will not be satisfied until I'm like that man. There's a, a classic danger urging people to be perfect. That people worry about a heresy called perfectionism, um, which you can accuse me of afterwards. I hope not, because I'll tell you why I'm not a perfectionist now. Why 
kind of am. Perfectionism is a heresy that teaches that it is possible for you in the present life before God raises you on the final day, it's, present, it's possible for you right now to become completely sin-free in your life. Uh, that's what it teaches. That's what perfectionism is. Um, so people will actually say, I don't sin anymore. I've passed that. I've, I've reached Jesus' state of perfection in my apprenticeship to him now. Um, it's a big problem because the Bible says it's wrong. Um, this is where the Bible says it's wrong. Uh, we read this fairly often when we confess our sins. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. Okay, well, the Bible says it's wrong straight away. Um, however, it's very easy to treat the wrong way. Um, does anybody know who C.H. Spurgeon is? C.F. Spurgeon is a, he's a Baptist preacher from the 19th century. He's probably the greatest preacher in the history of England, really. He spoke to just tens of thousands. Uh, like, I think he holds the, the record for the most people spoken to in the open air without a microphone, like 30,000 people or something. Um, he uh, was a very great man. He preached the gospel very ably until lots of people converted. Um, he went to a conference one time, and there was a guy there preaching perfectionism in a really, really out there place. Like, he just said, you will be sin-free right now if you just, you just go for it. And Spurgeon just said nothing. He just, it was really uncharacteristic for him. He didn't object to the guy. He didn't dispute about it. He just said nothing. Um, the next morning at breakfast, he was staying in the same place as the guy, I take it. Um, he went down to breakfast, and the guy's eating breakfast. And he picks up the jug of milk and just pours it on the guy's head. Uh, and the guy got up and swore at him, and he was really, really abusive. And Spurgeon just smiled and said nothing. <laughs> I'm really torn about it. Like I'm, I, I hear the story and I go, I'm glad the guy realised he was wrong, but gosh, I wish he wasn't wrong. Um, because we shouldn't rejoice that Spurgeon was right. Perfectionism is wrong. You can't totally beat sin this side of Jesus' resurrection, but there's one aspect of it that's completely profoundly right. He's saying, I will not be satisfied until I'm like the Lord Jesus. I will not be satisfied with anything less than that. And whilst perfectionism has its dangers... There's also a danger of just kind of being complacent about sin and just saying the best I can I aim to attain to is kind of being better than other people. Look, what, here's the goal Jesus sets for his apprentices. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the goal of your apprenticeship. Don't be satisfied with less. That's what Jesus is saying. You say, but I can't. That's not the point. There's the goal. Aim for that. Don't aim to be for, for less than that. That is the goal. Don't be satisfied with less than that. Because that's God's will for your life. That you'd be perfectly like the Lord Jesus. When did Jesus say it will happen? Well, have a look at chapter 5, verse 6. Remember the way I've been talk talking about it? Present and future, and when, when the kingdom comes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Remember the second half of the future when the kingdom comes. They'll be filled in the future when it comes. It doesn't mean you don't use every fibre of your being going for it now. See, on that day, Jesus will just give us Mastery of his trade. We'll be like him in every way. I love the way. 1 John says it. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, this second coming resurrection, when he remakes us, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be like him then. But, look at the second half of the next bit of it, all who have this hope of being perfect in the future purify themselves now, just as he is pure. You can't have the hope in the future if you don't have the goal in the present of his perfection. That's our goal. 
And so I get disturbed when I hear Christians speak as though their goal is just to be pretty good people or just to be not as bad as people at work or something like that. That's not Jesus' goal when you're a friendship with Jesus. His goal is you'd be like him. And we mustn't be satisfied with anything less than that. Where that leaves us is actively pursuing his righteousness in the present, growing more like Jesus year by year, all the while hungering and thirsting for far more than we can experience now. Two ways to end hunger. You can eat and drink, or you can die. I will not be satisfied until I am like that man. I'll either eat and drink, he'll return, make it happen, or I'll die first. But I'm not going to be satisfied with less than that. We must not be satisfied with less than that. Friends, in 2013, God's will for you is that you grow to be more like Jesus. That you hunger and thirst to grow in the way of Jesus. That is God's will for you. Don't be satisfied with anything less. Don't strive for anything less. Please have the expectation 2013 could be a year where you make massive steps of growth to be more like Jesus. How? We're going to have to pray today a lot. Some pretty basic steps there, though. These are the things we need to commit ourselves to with our entire building. If you look at our brochure at the top there, committing ourselves to discipleship. What are you learning as you read the Bible and pray daily? Are you joining God's family on Sunday in the life group? Are you meeting with other Christians together to help you and so you can help them? And talking to each other, asking each other, how would you say your friendship with Jesus is going? How can we help each other? Let's pray about that, because that needs a lot of prayer. of your spirit, please make us to be more like Jesus. May we be satisfied with absolutely nothing.